Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 346 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything going on in the world's of AEW and NXT, and wouldn't you know it, there is a shit ton going on in the world of AEW. The Silver King is back once again to break it all down. Vintage Chris Vanini unable to make today's show, but he said his piece, and the Silver King certainly said his piece on Tuesday's episode, where we not only broke down everything going down in the world of WWE coming out of Clash of the Castle, but also the immense amount of fallout from AEW All Out. I just recently, before starting this podcast, tweeted all of the reviews for that particular episode. And folks, if you did not hear it and you are on this episode to listen to AEW content, please go back into our show archives, find Tuesday's episode, and be sure to listen to our full breakdown of the CM Punk Tony Khan elite incident that completely overtook the positive press, if there was any, coming out of AEW All Out, the pay-per-view itself. But we are going to continue discussing that story on today's show. We're also going to break down everything that happened on AEW Dynamite and WWE's NXT. So there is a ton to get to on today's show, but as is true with any edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, I would be remiss if I began without reminding you that this show is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Hit us up with those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a written review. Tell everyone why you listen and why they should subscribe. The written reviews are super important. That is why we read all five-star reviews here on the show. And coming out of a week in which the Silver King and Vintage with balls to the wall to create as much content for you as we possibly could, those reviews now would mean more than ever. So please take 30 seconds, maybe 60 if you want to write a lot, hit up Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star review, Uh, but also five-star ratings on Apple and Spotify are also immensely appreciated. So please go ahead and do that. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. If you do, you will see the Silver King is venturing into some content that is beyond typical wrestling. We did a little bit of a Mean Girls parody of uh, CM Punk's press conference and Tony Khan's response to it. So if you follow us on Twitter, maybe you'll see a little bit more of that. I will key you in. I have one more that's been ready for about three weeks. And if a certain news story does transpire in WWE, that one will get released as well. So you can join us for that. Uh, Live takes during the major wrestling TV programs, polls, live shows on Twitter spaces, and episode drops. Every reason in the world to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Okay, enough of all that. Let's get into today's show. NXT, there were certainly developments on there. AEW is what's in the news right now. So we are absolutely going to start with AEW in general and Dynamite, which was the only show that we're really reviewing this week because basically everything that happened on Rampage had directly to do with All Out this past Sunday. Now, we are going to intertwine the AEW news we want to discuss with what actually happened on the show. So we're going to mix it all together in this overall 
review take on the product. Uh, in terms of Dynamite itself, it was actually a fantastic show. It really felt like AEW got back to basics in many ways, both for better and for worse. Obviously, the women, it's its unchanging. Yeah, they put them in the first hour. They got a grand total of six minutes of television time on Wednesday. But beyond that, we did get two absolute banger matches and a third really good match, along with plenty of storyline development throughout the episode. After the opening segment that we're going to talk about in a moment, it was an electric show. Uh, the Buffalo crowd was great. And this made it even more clear how poor AEW has been creatively since the start of the year, because this was simple and effective. Really good wrestling, really cohesive storytelling, and that's it. And guess what? You get a good wrestling show. It's the same criticisms we gave about WWE, we have given about WWE for years upon years now. All you need to do is put on good wrestling with simple stories that the fans can react to and relate to. And guess what? People are going to watch and people are going to enjoy. WWE has been turning in that direction over the last five or six weeks following the ousting of Vince McMahon. And AEW, perhaps with CM Punk potentially gone from the company, the elite on suspension, it seems like they're kind of leaning into that as well. And guess what? That's only going to make its product and the industry better. Um, This, it had the right amount of people on TV, the right amount of matches, quality wrestling, as I said, simple storytelling, This shit is not that hard. Now, Dynamite did open with a pre-taped message from Tony Khan. He was booed by fans when he first appeared on the big screen. Khan read a statement off a script announcing that the World Championship and Trios Championship have both been vacated. He did not mention any of the names of the champions that were coming out of All Out, nor anything about the incident, nor any punishments. The world title will be decided in a tournament of champions with the finals held at Grand Slam. That's appropriate. He also promised AEW would be at its very best over the next few weeks. The tournament appropriately included buys for Chris Jericho and John Moxley. First round matches were Brian Danielson versus Hangman Adam Page, which we got on Dynamite, and Sammy Guevara against Darby Allin, which we're getting on Rampage. Obviously, Kenny Omega was conspicuous by his absence in a tournament of champions, He, of course, is a former champion as well. First of all, my initial thought off the bat was Brian Danielson should be the one to win the title. He's the second most popular person in the company behind Jon Moxley. He would be a great first-time champion who can play a perfect foil to MJF and bring in ratings for winning the strap. It's also the one-year anniversary of, I believe, his first match in AEW, which was at Grand Slam. So it would make all the sense in the world for that to happen. However, after developments on the show, especially the opening segment that wasn't Tony Khan, it sure kind of seems like it's just going to be Mox again, getting his third title reign. Now, as to Tony Khan's announcement itself, let me preface this by saying, I am sure there are legal reasons as to why Khan could not go into detail. However, if you are someone who watches TV and is not like heavily online, you would perhaps have no idea why he vacated these titles. And if you are someone who is heavily online, which is a huge portion of the AEW fan base, you wanted and needed more than this. Khan should have simply said, due to an incident that occurred after All Out, we had no choice but to blah, blah, blah. At least you're not treating your fans like idiots if you say that. Off TV, 
AEW could also release to the media, hey, we have an incident under investigation. Our legal department is taking care of it. Here's an official statement on the entire matter. When we have more information, we will let you know. Instead, they are completely radio silent. Anyway, uh, this was produced like a hostage video with Khan reading off cue cards. And I don't say that to like joke about hostage videos. I say it because that's what it looked like. Since the whole thing was taped, could he really not explain extemporaneously what was a relatively simple announcement? And can someone teach this guy like how to freaking blink? The decision to vacate the titles, it's ultimately the correct one. What I appreciated most was the crowd booing him. Because while CM Punk was by far the most notable bad guy who deserved a ton of blame on Sunday, Tony was just as culpable given his inaction while he was sitting next to Punk and his inability to control the locker room, which obviously predates the specific incident on Sunday night. Listener Dustin Albino also noted to us that Tony got booed heavily between Dynamite and the taping for Rampage when he came out to the crowd. Dustin also said he jumped up and down the ramp fist pumping like a child when that was happening. Uh, Another listener told us the crowd actively laughed at Tony. Maybe it was for the jumping around, but he said that it happened when he claimed that he put together the best dynamite in the history of AEW. Again, it's just great to see the fans wising up to Tony Khan's bullshit. And if some of that was exposed in our podcast on Tuesday, following his actions on Sunday, then I'm just glad that we perhaps played a role in people seeing that this isn't just some guy that you put on a pedestal and think he's the greatest uh, creation in all mankind. The fans finally being able to recognize that's not the case, no longer giving him a pass, seeing through his bullshit, that's a great development. Similarly, they cheered when he said the world title had been stripped from CM Punk. So they've also turned on Punk to the same degree. We still need to see what Khan does in reality. But in terms of pushing the product forward, Vacating the titles was the correct decision. Also, all of the suspended parties were out of the show intro for Dynamite, which was interesting. We'll talk more about that in a moment. The simple truth here is this. Tony's always had the money. He's always had the knowledge, at least, of wrestling history. And he's always had the passion. There's no taking that away from him. But he's also largely treated AEW like a fantasy booking playground. What he's never displayed throughout any of this and still has not, is leadership skills. He proved this by not nipping the Colt Cabana stuff in the bud before it escalated, and he further proved it Sunday by sitting like idly by while Punk went on his rant and then all this stuff transpired afterward. He also has a strange either inability or unwillingness to ever explain himself. This pertains to everything from backstage happenings to things that literally happen on TV, including storylines, random wrestler appearances, questions from media about why he doesn't book the women's division better or give it more time. He refuses to accept responsibility when things don't go well, and in many cases, refuses to just explain things in general. Again, such as certain storylines or when wrestlers appear out of nowhere and fans perhaps don't know who they are unless they are not heavy independent wrestling fans. As I said earlier, It's really not that difficult to refer to what happened without being specific as a means of not creating legal issues, especially if you're scripting and taping the entire thing like you're being held against your will. So that could have completely been done better. Now, speaking of Sunday, we should probably go over reports about that incident following CM Punk's press conference that we did not cover on Tuesday's show because 
More came out of it Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday, and punishments were supposedly handed down. They were reportedly handed down because, again, AEW has not announced anything. Regarding the incident, there are two extremely divergent sides to this story. One paints the EVPs as the aggressors, while the other paints them as basically doing their jobs as executives. The first story, clearly from Punk's side, is that the Young Bucks slammed on his door aggressively and then literally kicked it down and started a fight. If any part of that is true, I would be surprised. But I'd particularly be shocked if any of you out there actually believe the Young Bucks would be so aggressive as to kick down a locker room door. Can you imagine them like lining up and doing super kick party on a door to try to knock it down? Height of hilarity. So please give me a break. The other side of the story is that the Bucks, other executives, so like Christopher Daniels as an example, and AEW's legal chief all entered the room relatively calmly when Punk started screaming at them, swung at Mac Jackson unprompted, and then the ruckus began. The truth, of course, is probably somewhere between these two extremes. But if the Bucks were really alongside their lawyer and she was with them, I find it really hard to imagine that they would be aggressive and physical. Can you imagine like wanting to get into a fight with someone and bringing your lawyer with you as you assault them or as you attempt to assault them? No one would ever do that. It's unfathomable to do that. What seems to be agreed upon, no matter what side of the story, are a couple of things. Matt got punched, Ace Steel both threw a chair at Nick and literally bit Kenny Omega, like with his mouth, like an animal. In the Bucks version of the story, Kenny was only physically involved at all to save Larry, which is CM Punk's dog. He didn't want him to get hurt in, like as this whole thing went down. He supposedly handed him to the lawyer. And then after doing so, got bitten, not by the dog, but by a human. So again, this is just an outstanding story, both in terms of like entertainment value and lack of believability that this is actually real and shit like this went down with adult men in a locker room um, after a show because of what CM Punk said. I don't blame the Young Bucks or Kenny Omega or Hangman Page or anyone for being angry at what he said, but I certainly think that the side of the story where they came in and just started a fight, I I really find that hard to believe. Hopefully we actually find out what happened at some point down the line. The whole thing that also is getting glossed over here is Colt Cabana. He's employed by Tony Khan right now with Ring of Honor. He's no longer on TV with AEW. We've talked about that. We've, um, you know, that's the story that's going around. And Tony Khan sat there while CM Punk slandered this guy for, you know, the better part of five to eight minutes, unprompted, without any interruption or Tony Khan doing anything about it. And you have to assume that there's a potential civil suit coming against Tony Khan or AEW because of that. I don't think he can probably sue CM Punk, or at least I don't think he would want to. Um, But if I'm Tony Khan, I am proactive as shit. If I'm him or the HR team, I'm proactive as shit with Cole Cabana. I go up to him, here's a six-figure payment. I'm sorry. It never should have happened. Please sign that you won't sue me. That's really the only way they can get out of that, unless Colt just says, wow, that guy's an asshole and it's not Tony's fault, which I really can't believe he would do, especially if he has any legal counseling. So that's another part of the matter that I don't hear anyone discussing, but it really should be a big time consideration for AEW. Now, we finally got word of action about all of this 
not Monday, not Tuesday, but Wednesday morning when Sports Illustrated reported that everyone involved, including the Bucks, Omega, Michael Nakazawa, Brandon Cutler, Christopher Daniels, and Pat Buck had been suspended pending an investigation. This does not mean they were in the wrong per se. Like this is a standard move that professional workplaces do to A, ensure no further escalation, but B, to create legal protection from the company seeming to take one side over another. And they do this until more information is made available and they can actually determine punishment. Included in that report was that the suspensions and firings are also being considered for CM Punk and A Steel with a meeting that came Wednesday. Now, that was scheduled for 4 p.m. Eastern and no word was released either formally or informally coming out of that meeting. So as of taping of this show, they're both employees of the company and technically we don't even know whether they're suspended, although I think it's pretty obvious that they're at a minimum suspended. What was notable in that SI report is that for no reason whatsoever, it included all of Tony Khan's bullshit about WWE scheduling events on Labor Day weekend. If you missed our Tuesday show, please listen to my take on that crap. I'm not gonna do it again. I spoke to Vintage about this offline before I taped the show today. Chris Vanini, of course, I'm talking about, our co-host. And we both agreed this was blatant proof of Tony directly giving this information to SI on the grounds of them also printing the WWE bullshit to slander WWE. It was exceptionally transparent on his part to work a national outlet in this way. It's smart to get major media exposure rather than like have Dave Meltzer report the suspensions. But in order to do that, he gave, he said, hey, you got to give this WWE nugget. You got to throw it in there as well. Very transparent, smart. You can make an argument that it was. I think it's a little ridiculous given my comments about it on our Tuesday show. And finally, uh, Dave Meltzer reported Wednesday into Thursday that CM Punk has a serious upper body injury, perhaps torn triceps, that will keep him out of action for at least six to eight months, which is just incredible that this guy won the world title twice, got injured both times without defending it once. That's like Finn Balor territory, except times two. And there's only one AEW title, so there's not even another WWE championship. So now we wait. We wait to see if Tony and AEW make the necessary move, which is to fire CM Punk, or show total cowardice by coordinating a suspension that goes along with the injury. We will wait to see if Tony shows any leadership when it comes to the elite as EVPs, if, and I stress if, they are found to have done anything wrong. And we wait to see what happens to AEW going forward, most specifically regarding CM Punk. If they fire him, great, it's the right move. If they fine and suspend him with the suspension being six to eight months, basically the time that he's already injured, that is as weak and ineffectual as Robert California saw Andy Bernard. That's the best way I can put it. Um, I am sure that they will pop a huge rating for Wednesday's episode of Dynamite. Will they be able to take advantage of that going forward? Are they willing to recognize that this show is booked well and see that in contrast to how poorly AEW Dynamite and Rampage especially have been booked for this calendar year, again, we're gonna have to wait. Now, in terms of the show itself, following Tony's initial announcement, MJF was the first TV segment. Uh, He played babyface, getting 
Cheap pops for Buffalo saying he would never leave AEW before starting a chant. There was also a great You Were Right chant from the fans regarding MJF's criticisms of AEW. I thought that was really funny. Uh, MJF said he's not in the tournament because he has the casino chip and he gets a match whenever he wants. This was not a plot hole anyway because everyone competing in it were former champions, either World or TNT, but it was still good that he addressed it. I thought that was smart. Uh, MJF said we're in dark times and no one is more trustworthy as a leader than him saying that he's even better than Moses. Uh, John Moxley cut him off. He said he's full of crap. And when he said that, MJF immediately turned back heel, saying he doesn't care about AEW or the fans, but he wants the title for bidding war purposes in 2024. He didn't mention WWE specifically, but he might as well have. Um, He said his other option is a real company with real fans, his best friend, Cody Rhodes, and the only con that matters, Nick. Then he said, He would quote the best wrestler of all time and his hero, The Game, saying, it is best for business. Mox got angrier and angrier because obviously, anytime you mention WWE in front of Mox, it bothers him more than anything else in the entire world possibly could. He threatened MJF, he dipped out of the ring. Mox then gave a whole rah-rah speech on behalf of AEW, going so far as to call the wrestlers heroes for performing during the pandemic, saying, the old parts of the business should die, and that AEW is the greatest, blah, blah, blah. He said the winners want the ball, so he wants the ball, and it's time for him to become a legend. So let's start with Mox here, okay? The rallying speech, for me, was corny as hell, as a viewer, especially given it didn't include mentions or allusions to anything. Now, I saw others praising it as some sort of turning point for AEW, the best promo of Mox's career. If you think that was the best promo, of Mox's career, either as John Moxley or Dean Ambrose, you need to watch some of his old promos back from AEW in particular. It was nowhere close to that, okay? Please give me a break. Now, I hope it rallied the troops backstage. If I was a member of the roster, I would love every single bit of what he said and buy completely into it. But this was not a team meeting. It was a wrestling promo to open a show. I know a lot of AEW fans see themselves as members of the team. Maybe that's why it hits for them so well. For me, I just thought it was corny, just being candid. Uh, I will say though, despite that, uh, Mox really is and has proven himself to be the heart and soul of AEW. And Khan losing sight of that because he got a shiny new toy and his favorite wrestler, CM Punk, is really unfortunate. And as I said on Tuesday's show, Mox took a risk to go there. Punk took advantage of his risk and others like Jericho. Now, good owners and good managers and leaders stick with the people who believed in you. Stick with the ones that brought you there. That's why Vince McMahon was so loyal to Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. It's why even to this day, he, well, I mean, he's not there anymore, but he was so loyal to Hulk Hogan and he wanted to honor and bring back the ultimate warrior and so on and so forth, because those are the people that stuck by him, stuck with him, and helped him achieve. And Tony Khan, hopefully, has now learned a similar lesson. Now, regarding MJF. MJF, outstanding as usual, especially because of the juxtaposition with Mox. It seemed like MJF might be doing the rallying promo, only to turn it around and be his shithead self anyways. Were the WWE mentions a bit too much? Sure. I mean, I hate the 2024 contract angle and I hate that it's being done in 2022. I don't want to deal with 18 more months of the same 
damn promo. When it's pretty clear this guy is actually not going to leave AEW, or Khan would never allow him to talk about it so frequently live on television. It's to the point where I believe he was not only given a raise, but he actually was probably extended already. It's so repetitive and trite, and he is so much better than being repetitive. It's one thing for like a Roman Reigns or a Drew McIntyre to be repetitive. Guys I love, right? They have taglines they want to hit, blah, blah, blah. MJF is supposed to be the polar opposite of that. And to do the same WWE 2024 contract promo, I mean, the guy hasn't been around in months and he comes back and he goes right back to doing it. I know technically it's part of the idea and the angle of him stepping away because he wanted more money and blah, blah, blah. Let's just hope it stops. If they decide to bring it back up uh, in late 2023, fine, but they need to be past that right now. They are very far away from that time. Also, I should note, it just felt like the wrong night to do it, given everything else that they were trying to accomplish. Beyond that, and beyond what we mentioned on Tuesday's show about how the number one asset AEW has is the dedicated fan base and how Tony Khan actively riled his fans up for two years by using anti-WWE sentiment. This was an example of them going right back to that. They were basically rallying the troops around, keeping MJF and AEW and not going to the big bad WWE and AEW is the anti-WWE. That's what Moxley was saying and so on. Again, extremely transparent in the goal here. But that said, MJF was absolutely the right person to open the show. He commanded the crowd and as usual, the guy was absolutely pitch perfect. That doesn't take away from his performance, what I said earlier, but it was notable. Chris Jericho was backstage with JAS saying he beat Danielson because he found the fountain of youth ahead of All Out. Then he said, drink it in, man, from the WWE days, calling himself the best wrestler in the world who would beat Danielson in the semifinals next week on Dynamite. This was particularly notable because this promo came like 45 minutes before Danielson's match. So Jericho literally gave away the result of the big quarterfinal match later in the show, assuming this was live. If it was taped, then AEW put it in the wrong spot, either of which is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, Jericho said it's his championship, AEW is his company, and it's his effing locker room. Then Sammy Guevara said he would beat up Darby Allen. Like literally that was his entire promo. Jericho then told Daniel Garcia he believed in him and he knew he'd beat Wheeler Yuta, but reiterated they won't be by his side because he wasn't by their side last week. So let's get to the two matches that have to do with that promo. Uh, Brian Danielson versus Hangman Page in a quarterfinal uh, championship tournament match. Great action both ways. Hangman hit the Spanish fly body slam, but Brian rolled away from a buckshot lariat attempt. Hangman flipped out of a German suplex and hit a Liger bomb, then flipped out of an avalanche back body drop and hit a lariat. Danielson got him with the label lock, then hit a double underhook driver and put the lock back on. Hangman caught Brian running for the psycho knee, but caught him with dead eye as a counter. He completely missed a moonsault, but when Brian hit the knee, Hangman fell outside. Page hit an apron bomb and moonsault outside. Brian then ducked the buckshot lariat, moving into an O'Connor roll with a backwards bridge for the one, two, three. Outstanding match. Obviously the right person went over. I'd have liked to have heard a promo from Brian afterward, given that Mox and Jericho have already spoken on the show. And he's the other big name in this tournament who could actually win the title. That was frustrating. Uh, he rematches with Jericho, one of the many rematches we are getting these days. And I'm assuming it's going to be 50-50 booking with Brian going over to advance. If that happens, you're looking at Brian and Mox in the final, though. 
If it doesn't, and they have Jericho go over him twice, and it's Mox Jericho again, well, we just saw that match, and it's Jericho beating Brian again, which would be super frustrating. Uh, but forget that, that's in the future. This was a really damn good TV match. They work exceptionally well together. 4.5 stars and an A. We also had an ROH Pure Championship match, Wheeler Yuta against Daniel Garcia. Westside Gun wrapped and walked down with Garcia. Yuta nearly broke his neck on an avalanche German suplex. It was really scary. Jericho rooted for him backstage while Garcia had the sharpshooter on Yuta. Yuta used a closed fist and got a warning. They countered submissions. Yuta got a two count on a seatbelt. Garcia put a third sharpshooter on him. Yuta tried to grab his neck and lean back, but Garcia applied more pressure as he humped the air and won the title via submission. After the bell, Danielson came down, put the title around Garcia's waist and raised his hand. Jericho came out watching in anger as they both shook hands twice. Brian pointed to him and Dynamite went off the air. Both a great match and great post-match here. Both guys have bright futures. Yuta does seem rather limited, mostly in terms of character and personality. Garcia's ceiling is the roof though, as Michael Jordan would say. Putting two young guys in the main event and letting them run with the opportunity I thought was really smart. And ending the show with the stars, Jericho and Brian, was the right move ultimately as well. It also sells their next match. It all worked together. Really well done. Um, 4.25 stars and an A for the match. I'm a little bit between that and four, but it was really good. Uh, we also had the vacant trios championship that needed to be decided. Death Triangle against Best Friends. There was a long sequence of moves without tags. Pentagon hit Orange Cassidy with a pump handle made in Japan. Trent Beretta then got double super kicked with Ray Phoenix on his back, resulting in a code red. There was stereo offense from Best Friends broken up by Pack. Best Friends got triple super kicked and then hit with triple Canadian destroyers in a heavily choreographed spot. Death Triangle then double tagged as Lucha Bros hit the topes and Pack hit Chuck Taylor with a black arrow to win the titles. Fine match, uh, damn fine match, I should say. Awesome opener for the show. Commentary immediately announced that Hispanic Heritage Month is beginning, which kind of made me roll my eyes that perhaps they were given the titles because they're Hispanic and that AEW needed to mention that right away. At least they made the right team champions. Pack is now the first person to hold two AEW titles simultaneously, which is really cool. If this was not so choreographed, if it was not a Rick Knox special, I probably would have gone higher. But 3.75 stars, B+. Plus, um, very good, entertaining, and Death Triangle remains awesome. Uh, Stokely Hathaway came out with his crew, promising an explanation for All Out. A stagehand tried to cut him off, so he hit him with a mic, and the rest of the guys beat on him with Morrissey hitting a big boot. Lee Moriarty also had green hair for some reason. So there was no explanation given, no connection to the MJF stuff, just the people we knew together being together. Are they guns for hire? Um, so that's like the APA, but a larger group. Are they with MJF? If so, why would you not put them together and explain that entire thing? Very odd to not give us more meat on the bone there. We'll see if they do it either Friday or next Wednesday on Dynamite. Uh, Tony Storm fought Penelope Ford in an eliminator match. This was an hour one and it only got a single commercial. That was the positive. Uh, the negative was the time. Uh, Storm hit a hip attack, then Ford tried a Northern Light suplex. Tony countered into what was supposed to be a DDT, but no move was made. There was never an impact. And Penelope just laid there for a three count in six minutes to the point that Storm, after the count, looked at the referee and said, that's it, like, that's over, that was the count. And he's like, yeah. And she shrugs and goes, okay. Um, it was good that Storm got to have a match days after becoming champion. But you know what would have been better? Letting her cut a damn promo as the new champion. 
and not giving her six minutes in the ring with a botched finish. That would have been better. God forbid AEW does anything with its women's division. Uh, Max Caster was hyped as the acclaimed made their entrance. The crowd was hyped too. They wanted to see what is this, or they wanted to hear what is this rap promo freestyle gonna be like. And just as he's about to start, Swerve Strickland cuts off his music. He said he's saving the crowd from a corny rap. Fans chanted asshole. He said he had a joke, acclaimed as champions. Anthony Bowens then confirmed the rematch for Grand Slam. He did the scissor me daddy ass thing. This was a great tease because everyone in the building, everyone watching at home wanted to hear what Caster was gonna say. But obviously, given that AEW didn't wanna say anything and did not say anything over the entire episode, it would have been really difficult for him to rap and allude to things and not mention the drama to a degree that would have popped people. And if you're not gonna pop people, there's really no point in doing the rap at all. Uh, This was also great from Swerve. I thought it was an absolutely perfect segment. My only minor gripe is the rematch is happening really for no reason from a company that said, we don't do rematches for no reason. It seems pretty clear the titles are gonna get changed at Grand Slam. And given the crowd response, that's the right move. The acclaimed are as over as they've ever been and probably as over as they ever will be. I'd have liked for them to have won the shot rather than just be given it, given they lost clean in the middle of the ring. But Swerve was fantastic here. This was probably one of the smartest and best moments that I can remember AEW doing. I was just a huge fan of the entire thing. Uh, Jungle Boy, who apparently is completely healthy, despite that attack at All Out, cut a taped promo saying Christian Cage prolonged the inevitable by needing surgery. Then he said Luchasaurus carried him on his shoulders, but Jungle Boy carried Luchasaurus and his entire career on his back uh, with everyone else saying that he was a joke. He said it was time to destroy his past. The Christian surgery thing is nothing that has been mentioned on TV and kayfabe. Just some random hard to find reports online. So it was really odd. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Tony Khan's refusal to explain things. It was odd to mention that as if everyone watching knew that was the reason why there was a short finish at All Out. The promo on Luchasaurus was good. Jungle Boy should probably tape all of his promos because he's way better like that when he's li- than when he's live with the mic. I still can't find myself caring about this at all. And him being completely healthy, ready to fight after that attack is exceptionally silly. The whole point of that attack was for Luchasaurus to beat him so bad that all Christian had to do was basically pin him. So that was frustrating. Uh, there was a TNT championship match, Wardlow against Tony Nese. Wardlow hit like four power bombs to beat Nice. Then he tried to take out Mark Sterling when Josh Woods saved Sterling. We still have never been given any real reason to know or care about Woods. Wardlow then grabbed the mic and nearly popped a blood vessel screaming how he sees online that people think his momentum is gone. He said, it's time to remind everyone that it's his world. If he toned down the promo like 50%, it probably would have been great. It's also hysterical how he treated the discourse around his title reign as if it's unreasonable to think that when he's been champion for three and a half months after a moment against MJF that was supposed to make him, yet he hasn't progressed or done anything notable since. And weren't they doing this smart Mark Sterling, Tony Nee storyline like months ago and then they just go back to it? So this wasn't notable. He didn't beat anyone notable in this situation and him screaming that it's his world. Well, okay, let's actually see them do something with you as opposed to you screaming that you're going to make it happen. I do want to issue a correction immediately. I'm thinking he beat MJF three and a half months ago. That momentum took him into the TNT title win, which was probably about two months ago. So still 
for two months. They've done nothing with him, despite this guy being at the peak of his popularity. They're trying to get back to it. Well, good. Maybe they're doing it now because there's a spot to fill, given what happened with CM Punk and Kenny Omega and some of these other people. So at least they're going back to Wardlow. Let's see if they actually do it. It's one thing to say it. It's another to see them do it. Uh, In footage after All Out, Britt Baker tried to apologize as Jamie Hayter left the arena. Jamie refused to hear her out, and Britt was clearly upset by it. It's a fine way to break them up, but it's also kind of cheap because Baker was right to try to win a title in a fatal four-way match where it's every woman for themselves. Baker's the heel, but Hayter's actually the one being unreasonable here, which is relatively weak ground in which to split when Britt has previously done worse to her and... In the future, they could have her do or should have her do worse to her to actually split them up. So I hope they reconcile and then Baker actually does something to create the split or to create, to get into Hater's mind that she doesn't care about me and all these types of things. But when you're in a fatal four-way match, you can't expect the person who is more of your boss than your friend to let you go over and win the title when they're going after it. So that was very odd. Um, Dark Order was cutting a promo backstage when Jose approached 10 with a contract from Andrade El Idolo. The other guy shoved him. Then Andrade and Roosh walked up with Andrade handing 10 a crutch, a new crutch, and walking off. I, I know they're kind of recruiting him, but like, A, who gives a fuck about Andrade recruiting 10? Why is he recruiting him? And B, didn't they just tase this guy last week? Like, that doesn't make sense. So, This was whatever. I didn't have any like what would be the equivalent for WWE of bads or uglies necessarily. I guess the women's match wasn't ugly. Um, But so because of that, it was a very good episode of Dynamite. But as you can see, once you got past some of those initial really exciting matches and and the main storyline that was key, there were a lot of holes in the rest of the show, a lot of odd decisions and developments. So was Dynamite really good? Yes. Was it great or the best one they've ever produced, like Tony Khan said? No, it absolutely was not. So with AEW now out of the way, let's move over to NXT. The first show coming out of NXT Worlds Collide with NXT UK officially defunct and no longer existing. So a lot happened on the show in terms of undercard and midcard development, not so much in the main event picture, which remains the problem in NXT, as I have said numerous times. So let's get right to it. Uh, J.D. McDonough fought Wesley. J.D. got pounced over the announce table by a tope suicida as Wesley got extended offense that ended with a great sequence of counters and exchanged moves. Wesley avoided Devil inside, but J.D. maintained risk control and hit him with it on a second try for the win in 10 minutes. It was a banger of a little match. Looking at both guys, I couldn't help but wonder to myself, why is one of these guys a main eventer and the other is like a mid-carder? When they're the same size with a similar talent level, but Wesley has far more charisma and a better look. I just couldn't figure that out. Uh, Tyler Bate was the one who actually opened the show by thanking the fans for supporting him in NXT UK. He put over Braun Breaker for being a great champion, saying it was great to be the first and last NXT UK champion when Gallus interrupted and told him he should be ashamed of himself for letting the entire United Kingdom down. Bate pointed out Gallus also lost their shot to represent NXT UK, so They started beating him three on one until Braun made the save to clear the ring and get a big pop from the crowd. He also issued a challenge for later in the show. So we got Breaker and Bait against Gallus. This was the main event. The faces did stereo delayed vertical suplexes, kip-ups, standing moonsaults, and the old Steiner Brothers pose in a really fun spot that, yes, was also very choreographed before commercial. 
Uh, Wolfgang attacked while the referee was distracted. Bait hit an assisted flying bulldog. Braun speared one coffee as a counter to a lariat as Bait hit the rebound lariat and Tyler Driver 97 to get the win in 12 minutes. I loved that Bait was the one who got the win. After the bell, McDonough booted Breaker out of the ring with a knee and hit double inside on Bait before jumping into the crowd as Braun ran back inside. So looks like they're just going ahead and continuing the main event storyline. We did not want them to continue because guess what? There is zero reason for a rematch. Braun beat his ass clean. And on top of that, the feud was boring as sin. The second straight Braun Breaker feud, that was boring as sin. I assume uh, it's gonna be McDonough against Bate. I have to believe they'll have McDonough beat him. So now Tyler Bates taking another loss and then it'll be Breaker and McDonough at some point in the future. I just don't understand the obsession with him in the main event scene, the refusal to give Braun opponents who are actually interesting. It just doesn't really make sense. The good thing coming out of this though is the faces were a shockingly great tag team and the match was a blast. Very entertaining. As I told you guys, I'm not doing grades for matches that aren't notable, whether it's title matches or just great matches on TV, trying to limit the the breakdowns of the matches, but I would definitely say this was a match that you should go out and see. A pretty deadly were admiring their titles backstage when Lash Legend told them people on Twitter said the only reason they won was Damon Kemp's heel turn, and they got upset about that. Tony D'Angelo offered them espresso later, and they sipped it. He asked how much they paid Kemp to help them win. Deadly said nothing. So D'Angelo put them over for getting him to do it for free. They got frustrated and left, basically trying to say, hey, we didn't have a role in that. Damon Kemp then, in a taped promo, said he got no respect from Roderick Strong or the rest of Diamond Mine, despite everything he helped them accomplish. He talked about beating Brutus in college and said Julius was jealous because Strong liked him more. He said he saw the beef coming between Strong and the Creeds and he could have stopped it, but since he didn't get any respect, he stirred the pot. Kemp took credit for attacking Strong and said the final disrespect from the Creed brothers was them not paying attention to him before the title match last week, and that led to his heel turn. Later backstage, Brutus said he was taking out Kemp on site. They have a rematch with Deadly next week, so the Creed said they would take care of business next week and then go after Kemp after that. Deadly said they would let the WWE Universe pick the stipulation so there are no more excuses when they defend the titles. And Julius promised to take his anger out on their bitch asses. Kemp, I thought, did a really good job explaining himself. The storyline does make sense. It's kind of cool that the strong stuff was a red herring the entire time, but I'm also curious if it was a red herring the entire time because we did note that reports were out there that Strong had asked for his release from WWE and they denied it to him. So I thought that they were doing this angle as a way to write him off and potentially give him his release. What I'm wondering is, since the change in leadership, did he perhaps rescind that request? And now since he's going to be there and happy to be there, they decided to turn Kemp instead? Or was this always the plan? So that would be a great question to find out in the future if I ever get to talk to parties involved uh, with this storyline. Given the Creed's a rematch immediately, you know, was it necessary to do it? Not really. You know, this isn't AEW where they claim they don't do rematches. Also, this would not be a direct rematch. It's one-on-one after the Creed's lost the titles. You could say, well, why don't Briggs and Jensen get an opportunity? I guess because of the Damon Kemp interference, there's more of a reason for it here. I'm okay with the rematch because of those circumstances. I'm also curious to see what the stipulation options end up being for this. 
Uh, Ricochet fought Trick Williams. Ricochet dominated early, but Carmelo Hayes distracted outside, letting Trick get up on him for a bit. Ricochet then caught him with recoil, which Trick sold Scott Hall style, sold it like absolute death. Rick then stared at Mello. He slowly climbed the ropes and hit the shooting star press for the win in four minutes. Later backstage, Trick said he's still big, strong, and good looking. Mello said he's sure to be named the top guy on the brand. There's going to be a vote. It's the one-year anniversary of NXT 2.0. Basically, like, who's the biggest star? And obviously, he's in the vote. Uh, He was also informed he's going to have a title match with the WWE Universe deciding the challenger next week. That obviously infuriated him. When you look at the options in terms of his challengers, it's pretty obvious who it's going to be. I didn't want to give it away, uh, but you guys can go look that up online if you want. Uh, Trick is still really green and Rick is still really good. So the match only going four minutes, I was okay with, but I don't understand continuing the mellow storyline when at least I don't think Ricochet has been moved down and Mello is defending the title against presumably someone else next week. It wouldn't even make sense to do that. So what's the goal here? A rematch and another loss for Ricochet? But again, there's another match between this and that. Very confusing what they're doing here. A toxic Attraction fought Nikki Ash and Dewdrop. JC Jane did a cannonball off the apron. Dewdrop hit a running senton on Toxic and a Vader bomb on Gigi Dolan, but JC broke the fall. Nikki trapped JC on the apron and beat her outside. Dewdrop then caught Dolan flying, hitting a Mishinoku driver and a running splash while she had a bloody nose, mind you, for the win in 10 minutes. This was a super entertaining match with some really fun spots. Uh, Dewdrop and Nikki were really good. Toxic Attraction was, was great as foils here, but I do not understand this booking at all. Yes, I do prefer veterans to beat NXT talent when they come down, which is what happened all the time in the old NXT. But Nikki and Dewdrop have been on a long losing streak with Nikki questioning her character. She took her mask, she threw it at Dewdrop Monday on Raw, yet here she is back wearing it on Tuesday and they're, they're getting the win. And then don't forget, Dewdrop got pinned at Worlds Collide only to single-handedly get the win over the top team in NXT who don't appear on their way to the main roster as much as we want them to be. This was just a really confusing decision given there's now continuity between the brands. When there wasn't, you could kind of compartmentalize this. But now that everything flows together, this doesn't flow. It didn't make sense. Dewdrop was the easy MVP of this match. She remains awesome. WWE, Triple H, Paul Levesque, they're doing all these name changes. They're giving people their first names back. How about you give her her entire name back? Get rid of Dewdrop. Allow her to be Piper Nevin. She'll be more serious. People will believe in her more. And guess what? She's awesome in the ring. She could actually be a champion. Give her the opportunity. Uh, Maiko Satamora was discussing her loss at NXT Worlds Collide when Cora Jade challenged her. This was backstage after the show, presumably. Uh, Mako denied the challenge and Cora suggested she was scared of her, but Sadamora clarified she already had a challenger, Roxanne Perez, which pissed Jade off. So on NXT, we got Sadamora and Perez. They had great back and forth action, including pinning combinations and submission counters. Roxanne took her out with a tope suicida. That made Cora angry backstage while she was watching. Mako hit a spinning dropkick. The fans chanted women's wrestling, which was really cool. Uh, Roxy made a run, but ate a heel kick. She came back with a Hurricanrana for a near fall, but Mako caught her with a falling kick and then hit Scorpio Rising for the win. After the bell, they bowed to each other, but when Satamora left, Cora Jade attacked Roxanne Perez with the black kendo stick before Satamora ran in to make the save. This was such a cool match booking, not to mention execution. Roxy at 20 is getting to fight Satamora 
on US soil. That is really special. It also tells you what WWE thinks about her future. They were both fantastic together. Satamora sold her ass off to get Roxy over. Legend shit from her right there. And I'm glad there wasn't some stupid inside cradle to get Perez the win or Jade interfered so there wasn't a clean finish. It was just really well done. Satamora had to go over. She is a legend. She is the final boss. Now, if she's staying in the United States and we don't know that she is, this was only a couple days after Worlds Collide, so maybe they convinced her to stay and do one more match. But if she is staying there, first of all, give us the damn Saray match that we were promised. Also, hey, Sasha Banks, you've always wanted to fight Satamora? Guess what? Resign with WWE if you haven't already. Now maybe you can. Guess what? Asuka, let's figure out a way. I don't care if it's in the Performance Center with one light hanging above the ring. Give me Asuka and Satamora one-on-one for 20 minutes, tape it and put it on the YouTube channel. I don't care what you do. If she is staying in the United States, there is no excuse not to have her fight everyone. Again, Sasha Banks, if she comes back, Asuka, Becky Lynch, hell, Charlotte. I don't even care. Le- Bianca Belair, Rhea Ripley. I wanna see Satamora against all of them as long as she's in the United States. Do not waste this opportunity. It's like when AEW gets Minoru Suzuki. Yes, have him fight Eddie Kingston. Let John Moxley fight him. Do all the matches for whatever period of time you have him there. They should treat her the exact same way. Uh, Nathan Frazier fought Axiom. So I thought that we were getting a British rounds match from these guys at Worlds Collide best of three rounds. But instead, we're getting a best of three series of regular matches on NXT television. I certainly could have misunderstood the segment last week, but I really don't think it was clear at all. Anyway, Frazier got caught in the ropes a bit on a tope suicida. Axiom kind of did a little bit later. Uh, Frazier lifted him from a seated position into a swinging neckbreaker. Frazier then sprung off the ropes to hit a flipping sling blade. Axiom blocked the standing shooting star press with double knees and eventually hit a running chest kick for the win. Outstanding wrestling here. High flying. We got map based. We got submission style. It was not as speedy as I expected it to be, but it was a really good look for both of these guys with a surprise winner in the first match. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus for this. Uh, Apollo Crews was writing in his journal explaining Grayson Waller blurred his vision in their match, and now he's seeking answers. Cruz turned his head, and one of his eyes was blood red. The gimmick remains a big question mark for me. Uh, Baby faces are supposed to be relatable. I'm not sure what part of this I'm supposed to relate to. doesn't really work. Uh, The dyad were trying to recruit more people with their weird table with all the buttons. Kiana James had her assistant grab a button and throw it in the trash. Ariana Grace was practicing lines, I think, for a show or like a play. When Kiana approached her and they agreed they both have a problem with Zoe Stark and Nikita Lyons, they decided to train together with the idea of teaming up. In the background, the person in the red hoodie had the button on their backpack that they got from NXT Worlds Collide. They approached the table again and hugged the dyad. We still don't know who this is, of course, nor do I really care, but clearly it looks like the schism is adding another member. Uh, D'Angelo offered Cameron Grimes some espresso. He said he had no interest in being part of the family. D'Angelo said he's run others out there who turned him down. Uh, Grimes threw coffee in Two Dimes' face. I think it's Two Dimes, Stacks, whichever one, I have no idea. Uh, But he ended up getting beat up two-on-one and put through a table with Uranagi. I thought the schism was waiting for Grimes to answer them, but now he's interacting with D'Angelo and Dyad is doing something completely different. That's certainly a positive for Grimes, unless the idea here is that he needs someone to get his back against D'Angelo, in which case Gacy sides next to him and they tag I don't know. The whole thing's pretty convoluted. We'll see. 
Grimes and a mystery partner will fight them next week. So maybe that's where like no one comes out for him and Gacy does and they team up and that's how they continue the storyline. Um, I hate it. Grimes should be on the main roster. As simple as that. Uh, the head security guard who spoke last week was rallying the troops to prepare for Gallus when Javier Bernal walked by to trash talk him again, like usual. Bernal said he's just a security guard. The guy said, yeah, that may be true, but I'll stick kick your ass any day of the week. It was actually a decent angle, I think, other than the fact that Bernal hasn't been introduced to the audience. And the only insult the security guard knows is the word prick, which he's now said three times in two weeks. Let's expand this dude's vocabulary and introduce us to Bernal besides him being a prick. Uh, Quincy Elliott got a vignette saying nothing's cuter than a boy on his scooter while he was riding a bedazzled scooter through a shopping center. A couple phrases I never thought I would say. Scissor me daddy ass. Nothing's cuter than a boy on his scooter on a wrestling podcast. Yet here we are in 2022. I'm joke serious about that, of course. It's just funny. Um, But he was riding a bedazzled scooter through a shopping center in Orlando. He's going to debut next week. So I am excited to see Quincy and see what he can do. There was an extremely short vignette for Sol Rucka, who is doing a surfer gimmick. She's a former Division I athlete who did acrobatics and tumbling for Oregon. She's been working the house shows, apparently, and had a level up match or maybe even a couple. Lots of similar traits to Tiffany Stratton. So I am interested to see uh, what becomes of her. And that about wraps up this week's NXT. Again, there was a lot of mid-card development, but you know, Mandy Rose wasn't on the show. She was celebrating by the pool. They showed her basically naked with one title around her um, private parts and another title around her chest. Uh, So I'm trying to describe that picture, folks. I mean, very difficult to do other than. But But again, Mandy wasn't on the show, so no development in terms of the main women's title. And Braun Breaker, I guess technically there's development in terms of the main event men's title, but it just seems to be a repeat of a feud that we already saw and don't really need to see again, or I personally don't even want to see again. So that's where we are uh, with NXT this week. So again, um, lots of developments, of course, in AEW, as we knew there would be. NXT kind of getting started on its journey after merging NXT UK and integrating some of those performers into its product. I hope that by ingraining them in the storylines, and I should say integrating them in the storylines, and ingraining them with the US audience. Uh, I hope that by doing that, they don't forget about all the other talent uh, in NXT that was getting TV time that really hasn't been on screen the last couple of weeks. I love the UK talent. I want them featured. At the same time, you have other people there that you need to develop. Tyler Bate, Gallus, Blair Davenport, they don't really need development. That's just the truth. They're all veterans. They're all talented. They could be on the main roster tomorrow if you wanted them to be, and you wouldn't think twice about it, right? From a talent standpoint. So, They need to consider what they're doing there. But folks, I got to tell you, it has been quite a week and a half of professional wrestling podcasting here at Getting Over. Instant analysis podcast, of course, for WWE Clash of the Castle, AEW All Out, and NXT Worlds Collide are still in our feed. If you missed them, make sure you listen to those. Please, I hope you did not miss our Tuesday episode. But I got to tell you, the Silver King, after doing this much performance-enhancing audio for you over the last week and a half, as I said... I am very excited personally to get four days to not talk into a mic and just watch some football. The NFL season is starting, college football getting into week two. I am very excited to take four days off, but don't you worry because this coming Tuesday, 
Same bat time, same bat channel. As always, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast will be back with our latest WWE episode as the build for Extreme Rules pretty much begins. And then, of course, on Thursday, we will be back with our next AEW and NXT episode. If something happens between now and either of those shows, such as CM Punk being fired, we will indeed have an instant reaction podcast to that, as we always do. But for the sake of my football watching and my sanity, let's hope maybe that doesn't happen until uh, mid-next week. I appreciate all of you listening to today's episode. On the way out, allow me to remind you, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So please leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, also leave that written review. So super important. And do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. What a week. What a weekend. Thank you all for joining us once again. It is now time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with three final words. Bye for now.